Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Josh Spodek, and I'm here with Matan Grafell. Matan, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. Glad to have you over here. And the we're recording in person. We had coffee a little while ago. We've known each other for years. I originally met you as an internet entrepreneur, I guess, and uh, working on online education. But you told me about something that you're working on, that you, you co-founded a, an organization called Ophelia, which was an online way of helping people with addiction. Yeah. Opiates in particular? Or, yeah. Okay. Yeah, opiates. And regular listeners know that addiction, I look at pollution and addiction as a huge connection. And I think a lot of us are addicted to things, social media, fast fashion, and things that are polluting, but we don't really realize it. And so you knew a lot about addiction and you've worked directly with people who are addicted, who've stopped being addicted, and also who help people who are addicted. Yeah. And I wonder if you could walk us through your background to become an internet entrepreneur and then how to apply that to addiction and why. Yeah. Yeah. So I've always been an entrepreneur to some extent. Uh, I think, you know, parents are entrepreneurial and I've been starting businesses since middle school. And my first job out of college was at a small startup that was like a little 20 person team trying to change the world. And it was there that I, you know, started coming up with ideas for things I wanted to start. But you know, as as you probably know, I didn't have any money saved up. I didn't know any you know developers to build anything, so I was kind of felt stuck. And um, fortunately, I had a friend who told me that basically he, in his experience, had had taught himself how to code while he was working a job uh, at like a parking garage. He picked up a book, he learned Ruby on Rails, and he was able to build you know, a website and um, was, was kind of off to the races and it changed his life. So this thing that I didn't really know anything about or, or honestly think was possible, you know, I had the this belief that you needed to have a you know, computer science degree and have studied it for four years to be, even be able to build something. Suddenly I thought, okay, maybe I can do this. I was a little skeptical, but I also kind of, you know, had a, a rebellious streak and trying to prove people wrong. So I quit my job. I I went to San Francisco, stayed on my friend's couch for a month. And I said, oh, well, if I'm going to give myself a month, I don't want to like waste too much time doing this if it's not going to work out. But I said, in a month, I'm going to try to build this prototype for this idea that I had. And I basically taught myself how to code. That led to my first startup, which actually ended up being an online education startup. The thing that really stuck and the thing that I realized there was the biggest market for was teaching other people like me who didn't have any technical background how to code. So I just, you know, I kept talking to people and telling them my story and they said, well, how did you do that? Like, I also, you know, I studied in business or I have this idea and I want to, you know, I want to build it, but I don't know how to code and I don't know any engineers. So I kind of laid out my, my path, my roadmap for them, gave them the steps. I started teaching classes and then eventually created um, what uh, was called One Month Rails for this uh, popular web app development framework called Ruby on Rails. And it basically... In 30 days, the whole premise was going from never, you know, having touched a line of code in your life to being able to build, you know, whatever it is that you have in mind and, and go end to end. So that was sort of the, the start of my entrepreneurial journey in that process. And I was a, a young 20 year old and I learned everything from, you know, how do you manage a team of people to how do you do product uh, management, marketing, engineering operations, like actually setting up the systems and the, the architecture for, you know, running a company. So you had this, you had, you started the first one month mm-hmm. 
And then you got funding, you hired people, so it was a full-fledged company. Yeah, well, I mean, it started with this online class, actually, on a, on a, a, a different website called um, Skillshare. And, uh, and that class, you know, uh, we had, I got 2,000 students the first time I ran that class. I didn't expect, you know, more than maybe 50 or 100. So that was just me and a computer and a webcam and like a microphone. You know, with I, what you learn in one month. With what, exactly. Oh, I, I got to share uh, what do you do now? What, what pays your bills? Uh, right now, I am uh, a professor um, at Columbia Business School, teaching teaching uh, Python and SQL. So I teach MBA students uh, coding. It's it's amazing. It's like it's great to hear how it started. Of like just, I don't know. I got I'll figure this out. And now you're teaching in an Ivy League top rated business school. Uh, where I went. Yeah, yeah. This is cool. Yeah. No, it's been it's been a wild journey, and so it just goes to the fact that like you never really know where any of these things are going to lead. You kind of got to follow your passion and interest. And, you know, that, that becomes relevant when, when talking about the Ophelia part of it as well. But, um, yeah, I guess fast forward, you know, as you said, I created that class. I, uh, I did this accelerator program for startups called Y Combinator, learned a lot there from other really successful startup founders, um, who have been through it before me. So, you know, big fan of like mentorship mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, did that for about four years. Mm-hmm. I uh, ended up getting a little burnt out and, you know, there were a lot of challenges with just that business generally. You know, we were successful in teaching a lot of students, but we, you know, we didn't end up making a very successful big like venture back business. So ended up stepping back from that and then taking some time off, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Explored a few different ideas. I wrote a book on, you know, on coding called Python for MBAs. And it was actually... Uh, three years after taking a break for about three years, I had a former student reach out to me and, uh, you know, I got this email, you know, in, in March and he said, you know, this is someone who I've, I've been giving advice over the years in terms of here's how you build products and here's how you build a startup. And he had uh, multiple ideas and he had eventually actually gone and joined a, like a solar energy company. And then he, uh, went back to school to get his MBA. Um, and he said, Hey, I have this startup idea. I'm going to be in the city. Would love to, you know, take you out for coffee and just get your thoughts on it. And I get a lot of students like this, and I get a lot of people sort of in my network. So, you know, I said, sure, I'm happy to be helpful. And usually, it's advice about fundraising or, you know, how to act, what technology to use, or how to how to do the marketing or build a team. Kind of like generalist the questions when you're starting out a business. But when we met up, he shared with me his story of how he lost uh, his ex girlfriend to a to an overdose, mm-hmm. and you know, this was. Um, this is a really tragic story. You kind of you hear these stories all the time these days. But someone who'd you know gotten addicted to painkillers, uh, you know, because she tried them in college, and then you know, for a lot of people, you know, they just try them, and you know, maybe they don't like them. But some people, you know, it really starts to become a habit. And in her case, you know, she was now post college working, you know, a successful job, but had this habit which had actually developed pretty significantly, and so she was using heroin at that point. A lot of people don't know, but you know, most heroin users start with prescription painkillers. So can I ask what the when she started Yeah. So she would have been eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old? Yeah. And why would someone to me, painkillers once I was at it was like a Thanksgiving dinner and my step aunt said that she had something like maybe some dental dental work that was they anyway, they give her Vicodin. Yep. And I remember her saying, like, wow, that was amazing. And I was like, that looks scary. 
And when we spoke about this at the coffee shop last time, you said that she partied, mm-hmm. which to me felt like party feel it. Can you make that connection? What, like, why was she doing this? Yeah. Well, I want to be I want to be careful because actually most people who get addicted to opioids start through a legitimate prescription from a doctor. So it's about like uh, 75% people who are prescribed. And that was most of the people that we ended up seeing was people who uh, often dental work. I mean, most people for a long time who got like their wisdom teeth pulled, got prescribed Vicodin or Percocet or something like that. I think even even today they prescribe painkillers for stuff like that. Get a lot of people who had C-sections, right? And then they were prescribed Oxycontin or you know, a, a painkiller, a lot of injuries, sports injuries, you know, you're playing baseball or football, you break your ankle, you get prescribed a painkiller. So it's most people who who get addicted and, you know, potentially end up using heroin, get it prescribed from a doctor legitimately. But there are, you know, there's some percentage of people who just start with painkillers recreationally, right? Some people start with heroin, but but actually quite few. So most people will be like, in college at a party and, you know, people are experimenting with different drugs. And so someone might have like a, a pill and say, hey, you know, give this a shot. Now, the the other interesting thing is most people do not actually like painkillers and it, most people don't get that high. So it's not a it's not a given that, you know, you take this thing, you're going to feel amazing and it's totally going to, you know, potentially ruin your life. I mean, it's only about 25 percent of people who even enjoy the feeling of painkillers, which it actually kind of contributes to the problem because most people you talk to who get their wisdom teeth pulled, they're prescribed, you know, Percocet. They find it to be kind of nauseating. You get sweaty. It's really uncomfortable. They only take a handful until they don't have to anymore. They stop. They keep the rest in their medicine cabinet, mm-hmm. right? But 25% of people, and we don't really know exactly why it is yet. It's it's one of the fields that's really being studied. Is there some sort of underlying biological or physiological condition, you know, in the brain that, you know, the way these neural pathways work that makes some people more likely mm-hmm. to get addicted or enjoy it than others. You know, um, alcoholism kind of works this way. There's different kinds of alcoholics and there's some where it, you know, reduces anxiety and there's some where, where it gets them more excited. And so it's a kind of different pathways that could both lead to addiction. And is that also the case for like a behavior related one, like gambling or like video games? When I was a kid, I really had fun with them. And now they just, I don't know, there's nothing appealing about them. It's a good question because the the behavioral stuff, you know, we have to come up with like psychological frameworks for why those things might be. There are probably, and it's likely that there are underlying sort of physiological conditions in the brain there too, but it's it's just a little bit harder to study as opposed to, you know, you give someone a physical thing, you know, a, a drug, and then you look at what's happening in the brain. But yeah, it's likely, you know, there's also, you know, often there's high correlations between addiction and like mental health conditions such as anxiety, depression, PTSD, right? And so, you know, fast forward a little bit to like treatment, you know, what does treatment look like? You often have to deal with the acute issues of like, you know, they're addicted to drugs, they're, that's all they think about, that's what they're spending all their money on. They've, you know, destroyed their relationships with their friends, their family, they've lost their job. You can't help them deal with some of the underlying issues of anxiety, depression, PTSD, or whatever it is that's leading them to use those drugs, if you haven't fixed, you know, the bigger problems, right? They're not going to like, you're not going to be able to spend weeks, years, sometimes digging into those deeper things until you've helped them, you know, actually get and keep a job, like that sort of thing. Yeah. So let's go back to her case. And by the way, this, this is also, okay, so you're teaching yeah. something you, you learned while on the couch 
you end up teaching in Ivy League Business School. Yeah. Uh, so also something that you, I guess we're about to hear how you got into Ophelia. Yeah. This is also just self-taught and you didn't go to medical school. No. Does someone need to go to medical school to learn a lot about addiction? Uh, no, but that, uh, that's a big caveat I wanted to give up front. I'm not like a trained doctor in this space, right? So a lot of what I'm saying are things that I've learned, but you know, people should rest easy. Like we have, we have a medical director at Ophelia, someone who's been studying substance abuse and addiction for 40 plus years. Mm -hmm. So we've really relied on expertise from, you know, the, the, the scientific community and the, like the medical community, although there's a lot of, you know, sort of questioning of medical community didn't really consider addiction to be a medical issue for a very long time. And it's also part of what got us to this place. But I've learned a lot through both reading, studying about it, learning about like the misconceptions we have as a society versus what's true and talking to a lot of people. You know, we people with addiction, yeah, people who are treating addiction, people who study addiction. Yeah. Part of the process when we were first starting out was just getting on the phone with people, like literally hundreds of people. We used to have everyone on the team when we were, you know, a 10 person team uh, get on the phone with probably, you know, 20, 30 uh, potential patients, like people who reached out to us and wanted to learn more about, you know, what we were doing. And so we'd get on the phone with every one of them and we'd hear their story and we'd hear, you know, what they were what they were dealing with, how they got to the point that they got to. So back to your former students, yeah, ex-girlfriend who's died from an overdose. She she took some sort of painkiller as a fun thing in college experimenting. Yeah. Must have liked it. Yeah. Or whether they liked it or not, wanted to do more. Mm -hmm. That's a different thing, right? Like versus want more. Yeah, yeah, it's it's fair. I mean, some people like it because of the the. I mean, I don't want to say euphoria because that's more associated with like uh, dopamine and amphetamines. Opioids tend to just produce a sense of of happiness and well being, mm -hmm. um, because the opioid receptors, the the pathways in the brain, are also basically the same as like the happiness pathways strangely enough and so that's one of the reasons like uh like i think the root of the word opium uh, has to do with like happiness producing you know thing and again i'm not like a anti-drug person generally i think these things have you know powerful effects and i think that sometimes it's uh, it can be equally dangerous for us for the you know the pendulum swings in the other direction and we saw that post you know, post everything that happened with the original sort of opioid overprescribing thing. Now people are underprescribing opioids. That's one of the reasons why people were led to the black market and started buying heroin, because it became it's really, really hard to get opioids from doctors after being really, really easy for a very long time. And so, you know, I think sometimes we don't realize the second and third order effects of the things that we do, right? Yes, it was very bad that, you know, the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma and Oxycontin led doctors to, you know, overprescribe opioids and, you know, consider pain like the number one thing that has to be dealt with. But it was also equally bad that after we realized that this was a problem, we basically said, you know, we cracked down and said any doctor that overprescribes, they, their medical license is going to get pulled. So people who had been seeing their doctor for years getting, you know, painkillers were now on the street, literally buying from drug dealers getting heroin because that's all that was available. And then today we're seeing uh, the introduction of fentanyl in, you know, the the black market and fentanyl is what's killing, you know, most people now. So we've gotten to a point where drug overdose is the number one cause of death in America for Americans under 50 years old. And it's because, you know, in the last five years, fer uh, fentanyl has really, you know, kind of 
gotten into everything. And so overdose deaths have skyrocketed. So it's like a cascading series of effects. A lot of it has to do with stigma and people not wanting to get help and them feeling shame that it's, they feel like it's a willpower thing that if you're not strong enough to overcome your addiction, there's something wrong with you. And so they don't go out and get help. And as a result, you know, they, they, they spiral and they're kind of stuck. Yeah. All right. So your fortune comes to you. Let's start, let's get to the founding of Ophelia because it's not like the typical place where someone with a uh, Y Combinator background is going to go. Yeah. And it's not obvious that it's going to help because I would think online, you want more touch, not less. And so, and also there was a connection for you as well, if I'm right. Yeah. I, you know, I lost a roommate in college to a drug overdose and it was one of those things that actually didn't really come to me until later. Like I, I remembered how helpless I felt at the time, but, and also how it just kind of felt like, you know, one of these things that happens every year we lose a celebrity or two to a drug overdose and we've just accepted it. Right. It's like, well, this is just what it means to be a celebrity, tragic story kind of thing. But it's just been so consistent every year and no one ever stopped to think like, what are the, what are the underlying reasons here and how can we make this less likely to happen in the future? You know, so, so when I lost that, my roommate, his name was Sean, to an overdose, it was another one of those, you know, chalk it up to like a, another statistic, another overdose this year. It was, you know, we kind of always knew that Sean had a tendency to sort of overindulge and, you know, he'd go on these sort of binges and, I think a lot of our friends, to some extent, honestly distanced ourselves from him because it almost felt like inevitably something bad was going to happen. And so because we didn't feel like we could do anything, it was almost too painful to, you know, to, to get involved and try to help. And so, you know, often for people with addiction, there's the second order, you know, casualties are the people around them, right? Friends and family who, you know, struggle with this, try to help someone and can't. And um, you call it second order, but I feel like that's the first place where it happens. It is. I think the, yeah, maybe, maybe it's controversial, but I think that often the people around someone with addiction are more impacted than the person with yeah. addiction. If you sort of multiply up the number of people affected and, and how much pain it creates. And I hope you don't mind that I'm, I'm translating everything you say into yeah. pollution-based addiction because most people flying around are like, what's the problem? And I'm like, there's people dying. And, you know, maybe it's not your family. But it's not like the exhaust just disappears out the jet, back of the jet. Yeah, that's fair. So everyone who's like, well, I'll act when it affects me. I feel like that's what did, that's what they say. That's what someone with someone who's addicted to a chemical, I, I feel like they often say, it's not a problem yet. I'm in control. Or And, and meanwhile, the fa- my brother-in-law, I'm sorry, my stepbrother, yeah. see the story he told me, everyone in the, he was in prison, state prison for, I think, two years for drugs. And he never asked me for money, but he asked everyone else, like, burn all these burn bridges all over the place. Yeah. And he once told me a story. I, I'm not really that much in touch with him these days, but he said that he had a motorcycle accident and they, they prescribed him painkillers. And then when the prescription ran out, he was addicted and got it from wherever he got it. Mm-hmm. And then his dealer was involved with some sort of sting. And like the dealer turned, like, said, I'll get you a few people if you can give me a lighter sentence. And so he got caught with that. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you believe that or not. It sounds too close to the, the story that is like the right, the story in the news. <laughs> and I don't know where I was going with that. It, oh, yeah. The people, it, it just really gets the people around someone. Yeah. And I mean, think about it. What makes it so 
sort of powerful of a condition is, I mean, the brain is a, is a incredibly powerful tool, right? And uh, if you really put your mind to something, you know, on the positive side, you can really get a lot done. The problem is, you know, for people who become addicted, if all of your mental energy is focused on how to get, you know, more of the thing that you're addicted to and you become dependent to, I mean, people spin all sorts of crazy, you know, tales. I, I think many times they believe it themselves, right? Because it's just easier and less painful and having to acknowledge, you know, the pain you're creating for yourself or, or for other people. So, you know, there's a tendency at, at a certain point for people to lie. Like you said, you know, you destroy relationships with friends and families. A lot of times people, friends and families want to help, but they get to a point where they're just like, I just, I have to cut this person out of my life because it's been so toxic. Mm. And, you know, the person who's, you know, the suffering from addiction, they don't really see it. Right. And if you're just so focused on uh, getting the next, you know, quote unquote hit. And I'm careful there too, because I think at a certain point it doesn't, you know, it doesn't actually produce euphoria. You know, you actually get into this deficit issue of, well, if you're not, if you don't have an opioid, you go through extreme withdrawal. It's incredibly painful and uncomfortable and more or less debilitating. And so, you know, you have this ticking clock, right, where you've got more or less 24 hours. And if you don't get more, you're going to start getting nausea, throwing up, fever, chills, aches, right? Imagine like, imagine a really severe flu, but at any point, if you don't get more of a drug, like that's what's going to happen to you and you know it's going to happen to you and it's going to last two to three weeks. So if you, you know, it's it, on one hand, it's like, all right, if it's just two to three weeks, you know, you can get through that. But if you have a job, you know, if you have to take care of your kids, if you can't afford to take two to three weeks, you know, that's enough for a lot of people to, they try, they try to quit multiple times and then they go back to it. I mean, the, the relapse rates here are, are incredibly high. And my friend who brings people from, well, he doesn't do it anymore, but he would go to hotels where people would, like I said, have their dens where they'd and use. And he said that the conditions in, in, in those places were like horrible, like the stench and the, the bodily fluids all over and like the old pizza boxes, just roaches and stuff. And he would come in and, and they knew him because he would just come in regularly and he'd say, is anyone ready? And if someone was ready, then he'd drive him in to rehab. Mm -hmm. And now, one of the things you point out was that that wretchedness, the stench and so forth, for them was community and euphoria or whatever the right word is. Like It's, it's a place of understanding and mutual support. Mm -hmm. He also said that there, he said it was six hours. If you have if you have a supply, you're fine. Once you don't have a supply, everything is about the next six hours. And the other thing he said was that they are incredible at manipulating, and, and like everything they say, everything they do is setting you up for if you can help, if you can be a way to get money or something to get that supply. It's all, and he was like, it's incredible how. You said how the mind is really, the human mind is really great. And that's like, when it's devoted to that. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, and so one of the problems, so as you mentioned the, on, on the timing with fentanyl, I mean, fentanyl is, uh, it's the, you know, one of the most powerful opioids that we have now, right? It's a hundred times more powerful than, um, than morphine, mm -hmm. right? And 50 times more powerful than heroin. That's fentanyl. And then you've got like carfentanil and other even more powerful things, a thousand times more powerful, et cetera. So why do these things exist? Well, they actually have like medical utility and it can be very valuable because one of the things is they, they come on faster 
but they also go away faster. So think of like if you give someone morphine, they might be out of it for a few hours. With fentanyl, you can deal with really sort of acute things. I mean, it's used for uh, for surgeries. It's used for cancer treatment. Mm-hmm. Quite painful things, but it's it'll be out. You know, you'll you'll stop feeling the effects after you know way less time than with morphine, right? And so, but the, for the same, not just less time, but also like the the transitions faster. Because yeah, exactly. My friend told me that it's. I mean, for an anesthesiologist, that's better. You want in or out, for yeah. sure. And I mean, interestingly, a lot of people will will say they actually enjoy the feeling of fentanyl less. You know, I mean, there's there's this weird nostalgia around the good old days of like real heroin, whereas most people now know that all heroin is more or less just fentanyl, and that's like you know disguised as it. So you have this feeling that's not as enjoyable. It's sort of yes, it's very strong and very powerful, and it sort of and it gets the job done, but it also doesn't last as long. So now you have this condition where okay, yeah, maybe six hours you do need to get more because. You know, it hasn't even lasted as long. From a marketing person, I also had a, had a guest on the podcast who wrote a book on, okay, so fentanyl doesn't require poppy. So you can manufacture it much cheaper, much, much more. Yeah. And it's going to make you more dependent. So it's like, as if, like an addictive substance is already, it's a product that sells itself. So it's like great for the legality aside, it's great for sales and for profits. And then if on top of that, you can just make as much as you want and you don't care if you, li- I mean, you know, he said that it was when they, they kept people crossing the border with like a million pills. Yeah. They don't care if they lose a few pills here and there. It's, it's just a cost of sales. So no big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, from a, from a cost of goods sold. Uh, yeah. From like a, a, the drug trafficking perspective, obviously you run a risk. And so if you can make more money on less volume that you're trafficking, you know, it's a lot easier to hide. It's kind of a no-brainer. On the other end, you know, when you get it to America, you cut a little bit of fentanyl into whatever else you're dealing. You know, the volume increases, you can sell it again. So it totally makes sense from an economic perspective of sort of why we're in this case. The other, um, there's a really good episode of um, a podcast called Search Engine about like, why are people putting fentanyl in drugs anyway? You know, a lot of people wonder like, why would drug dealers put something in that kills their clients? That doesn't seem like good business. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, in, in kind of a, a weird, twisted turn of things, a lot of times in the community, if you have addiction, if you hear that someone overdosed because there was fentanyl in a batch, you're going to say, oh, that must be like a really good batch. There's fentanyl in it. I want that. So it's this sort of backwards incentive that actually someone overdosing can be kind of an advertisement for the strength, the quality of someone's you know drugs. And you know, it's a, it's imagine it's like a quite a sad state of affairs where you know, you every time you use drugs, you know that there's a risk that you might overdose. And I think a lot of people get to the point where they're just like, well, that's that's the risk that I take. I'm okay with that. That's not the the, you know, the biggest thing that they're most afraid of. So your friend, or sorry, your former student comes to you. You also have a personal experience. Yeah. And how did you get, and so you started getting a team together and started talking to potential. Yeah. I mean, at, so at first, I'll be honest, like I didn't know if I wanted to to work with him on it. I hear a lot of ideas. I don't know if it, how many of them are good ideas or not good ideas. It seems on face value, you know, like a uh, a laudable mission, but is does that mean it's actually like a viable business? I had no idea. But I thought he said, "Well, I need help with." He's like, "I, you know, we have a medical director already who's willing to do it. What I need help with is figuring out how do I build, you know, this product." And and his hypothesis, his thesis was at the time. There were these, you know, two big companies, a few others, but Roe and Hims. Roe was doing um, erectile dysfunction uh, pills, basically online, and Hims was doing hair loss medication. So 
they had these ads in the subway that basically said, you know, if you suffer from ED, you know, you don't have to go into a doctor and have sort of a whole embarrassing thing. Come to our website, basically fill out a form and a doctor, you don't even have to see a doctor. Doctor just sort of reviews your condition. And in many cases will say, yep, like I'll prescribe you Viagra and it gets mailed to your door and then you, you know, you get Viagra, mm-hmm. right? Or hair loss pills. These are two things that are incredibly stigmatized conditions, right? For a lot of men. And so the the premise of, oh, I can just pay $30 a month and I just get like Viagra mailed to me. That's great. Mm-hmm. I don't have to even talk to someone. These businesses had grown to, you know, to be billion dollar businesses with, you know, thousands of hundreds of thousands of, of people using them, or even millions. And, you know, he he's looked at that and said, well, if something like that existed for my ex-girlfriend, then she would still be alive because he was... You know, he was one of the only people that knew that she was using heroin. I mean, she had this facade of, wait, what was her job? She was working in fashion in New York City. So she was working at like a very high, high end fashion brand that, you know, we all would have heard of. And, you know, she, she overdoses to this day, by the way, a lot of people don't know that she overdosed. They think that it was uh, sort of a condition of, of like a respiratory issue. And that's, that's what the family told everyone. So you know, speaks to the stigma aspect. We're in a place where, you know, it's it's kind of a, a an unfortunate related story. I know of a good friend whose brother died of an overdose and the family told everyone it was a suicide. Mm-hmm. And we're at a place where it's less stigmatized to say someone, you know, commits suicide than that they got addicted mm-hmm. and they overdosed, right? And so, you know, what my co-founder said was if something like that existed for my ex, then she'd still be alive because he was trying to help her get help. He was trying to help her get to a doctor. He was trying to help. She didn't want to do. She didn't think that she really had that big of a problem. She thought she just had like a, a habit that she needed to kick. She, she did end up going to a doctor and uh, she she was never able to admit that she used heroin. So she walks in the room and yeah, okay. And so he's like, doesn't really understand what's going on. Then she's suffering from depression or anxiety. You know, gets her therapy, gets her all these things, but never actually like the treatment she needed. And meanwhile, there is actually a, a medication that's you know specifically for drug addiction called it's called Suboxone. And Suboxone is something. Um, it's a lot like methadone. Most people have heard of methadone clinics. So at the methadone clinic, you have to go to a clinic in person daily they you know they give you methadone in a cup and you take it there in front of them with suboxone you, it can be prescribed by a doctor it's um it's newer and but not every doctor can prescribe it so you have to find a doctor who has gone through training to be able to prescribe it uh, there's a whole thing about the regulation that makes it hard to access but you know it's incredibly effective and it works really well there's a lot of stigma that you know we could get into around people feeling like you're not really Treating addiction, if you're just going from one drug to another, um, a lot of that is sort of like roots in AA and NA and, and you know, what it means to go cold turkey. But So that's Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Yes, so. exactly. But all that to, to be said, she was like, she was interested in Suboxone and, uh, and they knew it was effective. And so instead of going to a doctor and getting Suboxone from a doctor, she got Suboxone from her drug dealer. So it turns out because Suboxone, which is the treatment for opioid addiction, is so hard to get from an actual legitimate doctor, 
a lot of drug dealers will also sell Suboxone to their- Is it going to be laced with fentanyl sometimes? No. Well, the nice thing about Suboxone is it comes as like a film, sort of pre-wrapped. So it's, it's, uh, you can't really lace it with fentanyl, okay. unfortunately. And people will use it often not because it gets them high, although, you know, if you and I took Suboxone, you know, we'd probably feel something, right? If you're- if you have any kind of sub, uh, opioid use or tolerance, it's more or less just going to avoid, like eliminate withdrawal and craving symptoms, but you're not going to, you know, you're not going to feel euphoric. So, you know, people don't prefer it to, you know, using a lot of heroin, mm-hmm. but they'll have it because, you know, as you can imagine, drug dealers are not the most, you know, reliable people. They might not show up, you mm-hmm. know, on any given day. They might not respond. So having some Suboxone on hand, could be really helpful to help you avoid withdrawal and at least get you to the next day, right? So people will often maybe have a suboxone or two on hand. Some people, they want to stop using opioids. And so they they essentially wean themselves off onto suboxone, mm-hmm. right? Then they're taking suboxone. You take it once a day or twice a day as a film in the morning. And then you're basically good for 24 hours. And so there's people, I mean, we talked to a lot of people who had been using suboxone for 10 or 15 years but buying it from drug dealers or buying it from a friend who, you know, was getting it prescribed from a doctor. But essentially they had their their life totally in order. I mean, for many of them, it was they're like, it's a miracle. Like I'm, you know, I'm able to spend the holidays with my family. I'm able to keep a job. I don't care if, you know, I have to take this thing every day. Mm-hmm. But so she bought Suboxone from her drug dealer and she spent a thousand dollars on like a six week supply of Suboxone thinking if I can just get through you know, the withdrawal, then on, I'm on, on the other end, I'll be good. I can handle myself then. It's just withdrawal. Yeah, that's what, that's how a lot of people think. And unfortunately, you know, the numbers don't really back that up. Like 90% of people relapse within three months if they don't, if they just go cold turkey. So that's what happened to her. She relapsed after those six weeks. She, she wasn't able to get in touch with her drug dealer. You know, she bought from someone else, didn't really know the batch used if you use anywhere close to what you were using before you you know you went cold turkey your tolerance has essentially disappeared so you know tolerance is really a protective mechanism it's designed to protect you from dying because you use too much of a drug so if you use the same amount you know you have no tolerance you're very likely to overdose and so that's what happened to her so the business gets started yeah can you also you said that you and everyone in the company talked to people who were potential Clients, I guess, is that the right yeah, word? Yeah, patients. Patients. What were some of those stories and what was the relationship like? Yeah. So we started, he really came to me to help figure out what, what are the, what's the platform, the technology we have to build to be able to do this remotely. So that was the big premise was online doctor's visits. Unlike Roe or Hems, we, we do uh, face-to-face like video visits. You build a relationship with a doctor and a nurse and like a whole care team that you're seeing week after week. So it's not, you know, it's not like, you know, just transactional kind of thing. It is, in this case, very important that you build a relationship and build trust. But also, you know, I helped him put together the plan for how do you actually reach people? And, you know, as you can imagine, it's not everyone's going to just like raise their hand and say, yep, I use opioids. Like, you know, I want help. So how do you find, how do you, you know, through Facebook, through Google, through these different, these different tools, the, 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 essentially the startup playbook, right? That I was very familiar with. I didn't really know about healthcare. And I learned a lot of that through the process, but the building of the startup part was, you know, something I had a lot of experience with. So that's, we ended up teaming up and building that out. And so that was late 2019. And then COVID started, you know, in 2020, changed the game and every, a lot of things went online. And actually that, that ended up being really helpful for us in terms of like the model of what we were trying to do. 
So you dramatically lowered the, the, the threshold to seek help. Yeah. Say, I have a problem. I'd like, I'd like to know the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. And so as you mentioned, starting out, actually, we were not initially allowed to advertise on Facebook or Google. There's a lot of regulation around advertising healthcare products. Mm-hmm. You can do it. You have to get you have to get certified by this provider called LegitScript. And that's a they could take several months and they have to go through all your clinical protocols and your advertising and give you the stamp of approval, which we didn't have because we were a startup. And so we started with Craigslist. This was hat tip to my my girlfriend at the time who who yeah, I'm now married to. Her idea was why don't you just like post on Craigslist and see if, you know, people want to talk to you there. And it's a it's a little bit of like a startup hack that like Airbnb and a bunch of other startups had used in the early days. All right, I'm gonna interrupt you because I, I coach executives, CEOs of publicly traded companies. I started with an ad on Craigslist saying free coaching and that led to some of the clients were like, I'm I insist on paying you. I will get more value out of this if I pay you. And I'm like, all right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm very pleased with that. Well, we, so we started it actually before we even tried to get any patients, you know, we just wanted to talk to people and hear their stories. So we actually posted in the gig section on Craigslist and we said, we will, if you use opioids or have a story around opioids, we will pay you $15 to talk to you for 15 minutes. And we didn't know if anyone would, you know, reach out or be willing to, so obviously it's a private thing. We got a hundred responses in the first like 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. So we knew instantly that, okay, there's something here. Um, Obviously you're paying people, you know, so people could make stuff up, but like you talk to people and you you hear some of their stories and like, there's no way people can make this stuff up. It's like pretty wild. Let's come back, finish this, but let's come back to one of those things that was wild. And so we talked, you know, we talked to hundreds of people through that. Eventually, actually, as the product developed, realized you don't even have to offer to pay people. You can actually just say, hey, if you, if you use opiates and you're looking for some sort of treatment, mm-hmm. we're developing a new thing. You know, if you're interested, we'll talk to you about it. And we still got responses to that. And so that was the start of it. We eventually ended up going to Facebook and Google and doing all of those things, but it started on Craigslist. And so you asked about some of the stories. I mean, I remember, I remember talking to one woman whose mom was literally yelling at her in the background that she had to get out of the house. And she was like, I'm talking to the treatment people, like, you know, calm down. And the mom was like, if you don't get out, like, you know, if you don't get started, if you don't get a visit, like today, you're kicked out, right? Those are the kind of conditions people are dealing with, uh, which is, you know, it was like really intense and, and challenging over the phone. But the one actually that sticks with me the most, honestly, was there was a woman who was actively had a job at an investment bank. She was like a VP, very successful, right? Making hundreds of thousands. It was a banker. We'd also, we all know. Yeah. Yeah. And she was sort of telling me that she, over over a few years, gotten addicted, you know, was was using heroin. Nobody knew. Her husband didn't know. She'd been married for 15 years, had three kids. Nobody Injecting knew. Injecting or pills? or most, most heroin users don't actually inject, which is another misconception. It used to be in the 90s. But it had to do with the potency of the heroin. You had to eject it. Today, 90% of heroin users snort heroin. So that's another one of those things where they say, well, if I don't inject, then it's not that bad, right? So people, so she was uh, snorting heroin, which is most. Because I see people injecting in Washington Square Park in broad daylight all the time. Yeah. But that, that could be heroin. That could be meth. Uh, that, no, that's likely heroin. You would, you would usually like smoke meth. Yeah. Or snort meth. But so when they're smoking through pipe, that could be meth or it could be crack. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But with heroin, most people sniff heroin. And so she had been, you know, it escalates to heroin. 
Her husband doesn't know. Her kids don't know. She has, she's burned all of their savings. She said, we have no savings left. And as she's describing this to me, and she, as she says, I've, I have never talked to anyone about this. She just starts crying. She's like on the phone, bawling to the stranger that she's never talked to, you know, me prior than like five minutes before this. And this happens a lot. I mean, this is surprisingly common that as people are talking to us, they just have this emotional release. And it's because they are often feeling so hopeless at that point that, you know, they've tried on their own. They've tried to stop that, you know, you have this illusion, like I can quit if I want to. And then you try and you realize it's hard. So, you, you know, like, all right, I'll, I'll muster up the strength. I'll try it again. I'll try it again. And they try three or four times. And at that point, they realize, oh, shit, this is bad. I can't do this on my own. And then they get into this really helpless state. So they, they found themselves there. Like, they didn't realize they were there. Yeah. They're just like, yeah, I'm just a regular person. I'm having a good time. I'm, I'm kind of a cool person. Yeah. And suddenly, and, and it just sneaks up on them. Yeah, it sneaks up. And you don't realize how deep you're in until you try to stop and you can't. Mm-hmm. And, and then they face the stigma of... Mm-hmm you know, what it really means to be a drug addict in, in society. So it's, you know, a lot of people telling you, well, you just don't have the willpower if you're not able to quit, right? It's just about wanting to quit. You have a lot of, you know, doctors, you know, sort of not wanting to even deal with it because there's risk of, you know, they don't want to deal with malpractice and liability. They don't want to deal with patients that might overdose. You've got AA that's, you know, it's all about, or NA, Narcotics Anonymous, it's all about going cold turkey, right? It's all this stuff. And by that point, if you just talk to someone who shows you a potential way out and who also understands what you're going through and is not judging you, it's just such like an emotional release. So it's it's a it's a powerful thing for people. And I think that's as much a part of it, you know, as the actual like treatment itself. There's also this book over on my shelf out there, Evicted. There's one passage where someone like got off for a long time and then just ran into someone you know, back from the day. So there's all these contextual clues, not clues, but like, and I think it's if you're addicted to gambling or video games, it's like, it or doof, you know my term doof. Mm. It's like, it's, I mean, that's legal mm-hmm. and it's potent. Yeah. And it's everywhere. The head of Coca-Cola who said, you know, he just wants a Coke within the, with, within the arm's reach of everyone. Yeah. Because they know that they just need to just kind of imply that it's there. And then you, if someone's addicted or even like, somewhat off back in. Yeah. I mean, those, your surroundings are a, a huge one. I mean, there's a famous case of Vietnam War. A lot of people got addicted to, you know, opioids and, and heroin. And the, and the U.S. government was terrified that you're, you're going to bring back all these you know, veterans from the war and they would create this crazy epidemic in the U.S. Turns out, like, most people were able to actually, like, just stop using coming back here because they didn't have the, the context. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a totally different environment. And that's a really big part of it. Now, obviously, you know, some people did end up coming back, but it was not nearly as big of as like an epidemic as as they thought it would be. I'm also listening. To this. So you're talking about people trying to quit. Now, that's a place where, with addictions based on on pollution, I, I mean, that I you know I haven't gotten this through the American Psychological Association or whoever makes the DSM mm-hmm. to prove that this meets the criteria. But to me, it seems pretty clear. So I, I hope it's okay if I use it in my Working definition, un, non-professional. All right, so if someone's addicted. Okay, the number of people who tell me they had the trip of a lifetime every year, like that's not what a trip of a lifetime is. To me, it feels like that's something like tolerance or something like tolerance. And 
then they they don't realize how much they're hurting others and they don't realize how much they're dependent on it. Like like they they think that where they are is miserable, but they don't say that. Mm. But they they like where they are is so terrible that they have to get away all the time. And they're polluting the worlds of, you know, there's people dying by the tens of millions and but they don't try to stop. And mm. there's nothing out there saying there's a problem with this. They're, they're in like maybe fast fashion, buying stuff all the time. Like, well, I guess people, there's shopping, addic- I guess people recognize that. Of, and these sites are like designed. Yeah. They know the pathways. They know, I mean, in the beginning of the industrial revolution, it was mechanical engineers that were figuring out ways to make things easier. Power looms and, and, and to extend capabilities with cars and railroads, I guess, are the first. And now it's psychological engineers. Yeah. That are, they're not making your life better. They're, they're figuring out how to use this reward mechanism better than you can use it yourself. Well, there's, I mean, there's a distinction I want to draw and, and also just speak to the fact that like you, you, in addiction, you can't really force people into treatment. I mean, if people get involved in the prison system, you know, you can force them into it. And for a lot of people, that's sort of when they're forced to do it, like something bad happens, but there's this concept of like rock bottom you know, in, in AA and NA and, and we often talk about what's your rock bottom. Like what's that moment that really made people realize they have to do something. A lot of times before someone has hit their rock bottom, they're not really ready, you know, for treatment. They, maybe it's, maybe it's bad and maybe objectively as an outsider, you'd say this person needs help. But if someone's not themselves willing to get help, there's not really much you can do with, you can do for them. Unfortunately, you can make it easier. You can kind of set up the conditions, but to some extent, it needs to be a big enough problem for people that they are willing to themselves get treatment because if, unless it's intrinsically motivated and I know you, you know, you speak a lot to the intrinsic motivation of this stuff, it's not going to stick. And the distinction also that, that I learned a lot about in after starting Ophelia was the difference between addiction and dependence. I think in society, we often conflate the two, you know, if you have to use something every day to feel normal, there's dependence, right? And dependence is absolutely a an element of addiction. But addiction, I would say, in, a, in simple terms, addiction is dependence plus distress. If you are, if you're using something every day, but it's not causing a problem for you, you're dependent, but you're not really addicted, mm-hmm. right? The the talking to the DSM, what makes addiction so bad is it's you know it's it's thoughts about using something that you can't stop, you can't stop thinking about, right? It's fully taking over your life. It's causing you to not be able to keep a job. It's causing you to ruin relationships with your friends and family. You're burning through savings. You're creating like quite a distressing uh, situation. Sometimes for yourself, it can be really emotionally thing, uh, painful. It's distress, but you can't stop it. Or for other people around you, often both. So you've got these, the differences where someone might certainly be dependent it might be creating distress for other people and you know then it would qualify as sort of addiction even if the person themselves is like i'm fine but they're in denial um but you know it's different from okay like we're dependent on food we're dependent on oxygen there's all sorts of dependencies that you know we kind of are okay with and tolerate because they maybe they cause minor distress in some cases you know caffeine you know dependence or tolerance but there is you know i do want to distinguish there is a difference between dependence without distress, mild distress versus on the more extreme side. And so I think, I think sometimes, you know, to your point there, if people, if people are dependent, 
um, but they don't think they have a problem and it's not distressing enough or they're not at rock bottom, it's going to be hard to get them to change. So maybe it's more of dependence that people have on polluting things because if they don't feel this, they, well, except that, and it, and it can get to the point of distress actually, like social media is one of these examples where, you know, for a long time we're like, oh, it's fine. I'm spending a lot of time on social media. Now we realize, no, we're depressed and we are feeling anxiety and, and it's in note and suicide rates are skyrocketing. So there's, people are starting to realize there's real problems. I think that's going, starting to become the case for what you're talking about, but people might not acknowledge it yet. So they may be addicted, but they don't know that they're addicted. Yeah. Because they think no problem. And because if someone's, if the pain is felt by someone on the other side of the world, it's like a cigarette where you get the pleasure and someone else gets cancer. So they don't want treatment. They don't feel it makes any sense. They don't realize it. They often don't sense that there's a problem. Like they'll, people will see the news and they'll see these problems that they know that they're contributing to. And then, but they won't acknowledge or they'll, they'll tell themselves stories. What I do doesn't matter. Only governments and corporations can make a difference. The plane was going to fly anyway. Yeah. And these are, is, is the parallel with opiate addiction? Yeah. I mean, people, you know, people don't realize the impact that they're having on other people. And in order to continue doing what they want to do anyway, or, you know, they, it's easy to to deny that stuff. And if you don't see firsthand the impact you're having, then it's easy to, it makes it easier to deny. So, I mean, there's certainly parallels. Or if you see it in the distances, 10,000 miles or yeah. a long time. Yeah. What about role models? Because I feel like people who go, like AA, I think people who go through AA like to go back and help others if they've made it through. And I think that if I talk to someone about heroin use, I have no idea. Like, I don't know what it's like. And I would, I would guess that if, if someone's using, if someone's addicted and they're at level nine and someone who's only experienced level two talks to them, they probably don't feel like it says, like they don't really know. But if someone has been at a deeper level, it's probably stronger. And yeah, there's, I mean, there's a big role in, in peer support in like the addiction community. Other people have experienced it. And I think one of the problems with the AA and NA model, as you said, is people who have gone through often, you know. A big part of it is giving your life, you know, to the support of other people. So it makes sense that they would want to then help out other people. But it is, you know, they're very much of the mindset of AA and NA that any using any substances is not really being, you know, quote unquote clean. And so, you know, you get people that it, AA has better success rates than NA for opioid addiction. But as I mentioned, 90% of people relapse if you try to go cold turkey from opioids. So, okay, 10% of people make it through. And so those are the people you see on the other end saying, you know, hey, this works. You just have to like have the willpower. You have to struggle. And those are the people that talk about it. Those are the people you read about in the news. And, but the people who weren't able to succeed that way and the people who were able to succeed because of Suboxone, you don't hear about a lot of those people because there's so much stigma around, as I mentioned, just, you know, medication these days, prescription drugs, you know, AA, the pressure is saying, you know, you don't really have willpower. So they're not out there talking about it. And so the role models you see are the people that, you know, then if you have addiction, you compare yourself to that person and you say, well, they were able to do it, but I can't. So there must be something wrong with me. Mm. Right. Or special about them. Yeah. Or special about them. That only, I think, contributes to these feelings of, you know, people getting really down on themselves and getting more depressed. And so I think there do need to be more role models just First of all, just destigmatizing addiction 
because a lot of people are addicted out there. We just don't realize when we think of addiction or people with addiction, we think of the the visible cases, you know, as you said, the people shooting up in Washington Square Park, people outside of a methadone clinic. We don't think about the 80% of people who are working jobs and no one would know that they're addicted, right? They're doing a decent job hiding it for now, at least, but that's most of the people. So, you know, and then when those people think about, you know, oh, th- these are the real drug users, the people who are in Washington Square Park or outside of Methodist, but that's not me. So I don't, I must not have that big of a problem. I mean, that's just contributing to the cycle that we're in and contributing to people not talking about it and also not talking about what is available out there in terms of treatment outcomes or treatment options. So I think there need to be role models. Like I would love to have, you know, there must be thousands of celebrities out there who have gone through this and who, you know, either are using Suboxone or have used Suboxone, but have never talked about it because maybe their, you know, PR agent said, oh, that's not like the image that we want to convey. I would love to have some just kind of say, like, this is it. And, you know, it's not my fault I got addicted. But John Mulaney, I think was cocaine, but yeah. him coming out and being open about it is probably helpful. Yeah, I think absolutely. I think I hear what you're saying is like, there's a spectrum and, but if you, if you make it sound like it's discreet, then everyone can say, well, I'm not that. Yeah. Whereas if you make it a spectrum, then you realize, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting, I'm moving in that direction and I see that I'm not different from them. Yeah. We, we you know, one of the most surprising things at Ophelia was we, we tested out a lot of different messaging and advertising. And one of them was, you know, you didn't choose to get addicted, but now you can choose, you know, to get help. It was probably the most controversial ad because so many of the responses were, this is this is a lie. People choose addiction. They choose it every day. They chose to use drugs in the first place. They're, you know, not willing to do the hard thing to quit. And it's it's just remarkable how much people have invested in this idea that it's, you know, people's active conscious choice. For some reason, that seems to be important for people somehow. Yeah, I'd like to talk to someone like that and say, okay, stop polluting. There you go. Exactly. People don't acknowledge their own, you know, their own cases where, you know, where they're not able to choose to get help. All right. We talked about, I could keep talking about this and I hope to talk, I hope to follow up next time. Sure. Um, but let's talk intrinsic motivation and the Spodic method. So I talked to you about it before. And so this is going to be a big shift in our conversation. Sure. But I'm also curious in how this connects with, I'm really interested in, okay, so you've worked with a lot of people, you've seen things that work, you've th- seen things that don't work. Here's this other technique for something slightly different. Mm-hmm. So is environment something that matters to you enough to act on it in some way? Yeah. When you think about the environment, what's like, if I say you think of yourself in a moment, a quintessential moment when you're in nature, not polluting, it's different for everyone because different people grow up in different situations. So like, what's nature for you? What's it? I mean, like going on a hike upstate or even just, yeah, like like seeing the, the rolling hills, like the beauty of, uh, I live up. I have a place up in the Hudson Valley. So being up there is really quite, so, quite nice. If you have a place up there, I take it you, something earlier happened that led you to be like, that's like some people get a place by the beach or something people get, how did, was there something that told that like, did you grow up in mountains? I grew up in New Jersey. so not far from that area, but I think, it was, I mean, during COVID, you know, it spent some time lit, like sort of co-living with friends. A few of us rented a place upstate and spent a month there. And then we spent another month like somewhere near Woodstock. And it was really, I mean, that that style of living was so nice, especially compared to New York. Mm-hmm. So it, it felt like to have a place like that, they can go away and get away from the, you know, the, the craziness. 
was just like, you know, relaxation. Was there, was there like an earlier experience that led you in that direction? Being able to get away or, I mean, or anything like, usually the earlier, uh, the younger someone is, the more formative, the, 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 the experience of nature. We had to have his school trips in New Jersey where I grew up to like the sort of the nature preserves. So we would go like on little hikes. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that kind of what it, what it reminds me of when I go on these hikes. Like, did they stick with you? I mean, were they formative? Were they? I think so. Yeah. What were they like? And were the ones that were you were always with people or every time when you were on your own, always with people? I mean, then as a kid, you know, it was a lot of like playing right outside, sort of like with sticks and in mud and those things. And we have more of those experiences, you know, when we're younger, I think, than, and then as adults. But it was calm. It was like presence. It was it was a break. A break from school was always a big one. So, you know, the contrast of being in the classroom versus being out in nature just like felt a lot more expansive. And I'm trying to see if there's something where you... These all feel like group activities. It's more of the human element. Well, and I'm, I'm trying to think if there's... I'm trying to see if there's any times when it was like you alone with nature or you... Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, honestly, no, nothing, nothing comes to mind. So let's go with the... If something comes to mind, let me know. It sounds like this stuff upstate, so it's pretty recent. And, but let's let's see where it goes. When, have you ever gone up there on your own, or is it always with others? Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, I, I've, I've gone up there, and I even I have friends that go up there, too, and just kind of use the place for a weekend to go through their own journeys. But go up there by myself, and it's solitary, and it's nice, and it gives, gives me time to contemplate. So is it in the in the cabin or is it walking around? Uh, yeah, it's both. I mean, there's there's a lot of like trails in nature around there. So walking around, sort of climbing, jumping over the stream or walking through like pathways, but also even just like staying in the cabin, making a fire. And are there any, can you think of any specific, specific instances where your particular route that you took or particular stream that you crossed or particular... Uh, yeah, there's a little, there's a little creek right next to the house that you you go down a hill and jump over the creek. So I, I remember doing that. What do you, what do you see, smell, hear, taste, touch? It's definitely the leaves, like smelling sort of like the, you know, the, almost like the slightly fermented, you know, leaves. If it's been like kind of damp and they've been out there for a while, can hear the, hear the creek. It's like the water is colder. Yeah, you can. It's it's shady because there's a lot of trees overhead, but, but there's still kind of a lot of space and like undergrowth and stuff going on. Sorry, you brought me there with the fermented fermented smell, and I I can like there's like it's a pungent smell, but there's like a, a sharpness to it. Am I right? Like a not vinegary, but sort of yeah, in that direction. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you brought me there. Cool. All right. So when you're there, you jump over the creek, or what emotions do you feel? I feel. It, it, there's like a sharpness of presence, like feeling there's really aware of what's going on around me. There's like an abundance of all of, all of the things. I mean, there's sounds and sights everywhere, like literally all around me. So there's just a lot to take in, but in a way that makes me feel like outside of my own body. Like I am just kind of the, you know, the environment. There's like a, there's fun, like challenge to it. It's It's often just like, oh, I want to jump over that thing. That feels fun. Or I want to go check out that thing. Like, what's that over there? I'm going to go walk there and or like have a path. So being being directed and like feeling a sense of accomplishment and exploration. 
All right. So abundance, exploration. You said calm earlier. I'm not sure if that was for when you were a kid. I invite you, if you if you're up for it, to think of something you could do to manifest those emotions. So to feel that abundance, to feel that I think discovery. I forget exactly what you said. Mm-hmm. Without going up there, like in your regular life here, mm-hmm. something that you could do to make yourself feel those ways, and. So hopefully it would be a rewarding experience. And if you go for it, there's three three constraints. Something you do yourself, something you're not already doing, and something that it can't be just neutral. You don't have to measure, but when you finish, you have to walk away feeling like in some you have, you have to have a sense that you left things better than you found it. Mm-hmm. And what I'm not saying to a lot of people here is I'm not saying what's something you do to help the environment. Mm-hmm. That's not it's it's to make you bring about emotions that you like. Mm-hmm. Wanna give it a shot? Yeah, I mean so I mean, this doesn't qualify as those because I do it already, but like being in states of contemplation, like turning off, you know, devices is really helpful for getting there. I don't do that one as often or as well. One thing I've wanted to do uh, has been just to take like a, like a weekly 24 hour, like electronics sabbatical. Digital, what's it, what do they they call it? Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Because I think that would create a similar state. I don't know that that. I mean, maybe it does leave the world better off, right? So from your, you know, kind of definition of like, does not, not using technology. Well, if, you, if, if you're not drawing power, yeah, it's your, it's your criteria that matter, but if you're not drawing power that you would have, then, and you're on the grid. And I, well, I think also just being in a better state of presence with like the people that I am with, right? So it's more focus and more attention, more time spent on, you know, getting deeper into stuff, so. Yeah, like I would love to do a digital detox. Well, so you've been meaning a lot of people. They say, "Yeah, I've been meaning to do this thing," and that fit. That it, okay, it's something you weren't already doing. Yeah, or if you did, you 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 did more. It's something you do yourself. It's and it's something that you can feel you left the world better than you found it. Yeah. So that would fit the bill if you're up for it. If I if we came back to have a second conversation, how long between now and then would have to would you have to do it? So that if I asked you how it went, you'd have a meaningful answer. Probably a month. And are you going to do it like every day or once a week? Or I think I would love to do a once a week on like Saturday. So I think a, a reasonable starting point would just be like from when I wake up to sunset on Saturday. I think I would love eventually to get, you know, sunset to sunset, kind of like, a, you know, Shabbat uh, kind of thing. You're in Brooklyn, right? So yeah, we're in Brooklyn. feds. But I think, you know, I, I often do dinner plans with friends on like Friday night. But I think... Yeah, I think doing a Saturday thing seems like a good starting point. If we scheduled another conversation for one month from now, you'd have four Saturdays to to talk about. Yeah, except for this Saturday. So that's where I was thinking, like, okay, so maybe five Saturdays from now. Exactly. Okay. All right. Now I walked you through this process of of asking you about nature and things like that. So you wouldn't have done this with, if not for me. Mm-hmm. Are you doing this for me? No, this is, I mean, this is, it's a prompting and it's kind of a reminding, but yeah, it's something I've wanted to do anyway. So it's just kind of connecting it back to like, why do I want to do it? And, and what could I actually get out of it? That's enjoyable as opposed to thinking about oh, why, what are all the reasons why it's going to be hard to do this thing? And I can't help but call attention to the term digital detox with the, with you. That's a more meaningful term than I think many other people. Definitely. Well, I propose that we pick up here next time. Anything to, anything you want to close with? I mean, we'll we'll pick up in a minute in in a month. But no, I'm just I appreciate the conversation, and I think these are important topics that you know we don't really talk about a lot. And so I want to thank everyone for listening and being open minded.
Oh, yeah. If someone's listening to this and knows someone, okay, Ophelia.com? And, yeah, uh, Ophelia.com. Okay. okay. And, and it's, I, I'm guessing that it's a very low barrier to entry. You just call up, you just say, you just get started. There's there's like, I mean, we even, you know, you could see if you're like a good fit program, then there's like, a, you know, you, you could talk to someone for 15 minutes, learn about how it works. There's like no commitment. We accept a lot of insurance. So yeah, it's a pretty low, low commitment. I think you said it began in New York State, but is it now... National, international. Uh, we have we're live in fifteen states, I believe, right now. So yeah, New York, California, Pennsylvania, a lot of the days. Yeah, exactly. Check online. All right. Well, yeah, I can't wait till next time. And I am I right that as you do this digital detox, are you going to be connecting what we're doing with Ophelia? You mean in my mind as in doing it? Yeah, certainly. I'm going to be noticing, okay, what's hard about this? Like, where am I getting the itch, you know, to use? And where might I be in denial? So it'll definitely be an experience. I'm very curious about that because, uh, yeah. Well, Matan, thank you very much. Thank you, Josh. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, There's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.